All right. I am thrilled to be relaunching SpartyCast with one of my good friends, one of my favorite collaborators, an awesome person in general, Dr. Andrew Gambino. Welcome to SpartyCast. Well, thank you for that great introduction, Dr. Tan. It's so great to be here talking about ChatGPT. Yeah, ChatGPT, Bard, Social AI, all the all the names. There's so many, right? Have you been uh, Have you been keeping up on the news, or I mean, what's the latest that's hit your radar? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're in an academic department, especially one that is social, scientific, or humanities oriented, you are very up on the news. We've had meetings about it in our department. We've had a lot of coverage just thinking about how to, you know, work with it in the classroom and at least understand how students are going to use it. So that's been a pretty big, that's been a yeah. pretty big part of my life, actually. From the teaching perspective, right, it's complicating things. Students using these tools to write their papers or otherwise feign productivity. Can you tell? Like, I, I, I don't think I can tell yet. Other than that, they would be like very good assignments or very good papers. <laughs> That'd be the best way that I could tell. Yeah, no, I can't tell. So we have a policy, at least I've put one in my syllabus that if they use it, they have to cite it uh, in the same way that they would cite another source. Um, and I would expect most of them to hold to that. Um, hold on, I didn't introduce you properly, though. So uh, Andrew is an assistant professor, newly joined at the University of Delaware. Um, your PhD is from Penn State. You spent a little bit of time in between that PhD and your current gig at the, uh, say the name for me properly, so I don't... Hong Kong Baptist University. Hong Kong Baptist University. I didn't want to butcher that. Um, and, and so we've known each other for a while since we started talking about, this is, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, we started talking about avatar yeah. type research. Yeah, I guess that's true. I, I feel like <laughs> uh, knew each other from conferences and Jamie and Nick's thing, um, their yeah, book thing. Been here for a while. And Jamie Banks, Nick Bowman, uh, yeah. both great video games researchers. So, so we were we've worked in the same circles. Um, and Andrew and I have been working on a, I would call it a theory at this point. I don't feel like I'm overselling it. <laughs> Hopefully someday. <laughs> Hopefully someday. That's why it's a theory. It's taken so damn long to develop. But we're like, we're literally six studies in, like six unpublished studies into testing this idea <laughs> um, about the way that people interact with media and uh, interact socially with media, um, which, you know, we are building off of the media equation. So Andrew, what is the media equation? Well, I think that when the premise for this podcast was that everybody does seem to be very surprised by how they like ChatGPT. But if we just draw on our great social scientific theory, the media equation by Byron Reeves and Cliff Nass, we would know that we tend to treat media like we do people. So of course, this fantastic conversational AI of ChatGPT is very engaging to us because we like to be social and conversational ourselves. And really, I think that's the main premise. Like anything we do in real life, we're going to like to do with media. We're going to apply those same stereotypes, scripts, and schema to our interactions with media technologies. Absolutely. So we're just 
we're just following those same patterns of, of social interaction when we interact with media. Um, <laughs> ready for my my the, the most embarrassing uh, confession of the day here. So I we've known the media equation our whole our whole academic careers, right? You you know it uh, as well as anyone in the field, um, and I and I thought I did too. And then this last quarter, um, so I, I'm still at MSU, but I'm I taught a class at Stanford, and I taught a, an intro com class, uh, the class that I took back when I was a master's student, and we Ooh. taught the media equation theory, um, and that's actually one of the reasons I was so inspired to to. Uh, work on this podcast episode with you. Um, so we taught the media equation theory, and then we talked about CASA. And my students were asking me, well, what's the difference between the media equation theory and CASA? And I had never really sat down to think about it. Um, and, and the easiest way I can explain it, and then tell me if you agree with this, Andrew, I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you to define it without a moment to, to reflect here, is um, the media equation theory is broader. It, it applies to televisions and radio and any sort of like mediated communication channel where as CASA stands for computers as social actors. So it's limited to artificial agents. Would you agree with that? I would. And I think that, I mean, I, I could be totally wrong here, but I believe part of the premise between Byron and Cliff was that they've flipped a coin about whether it's going to be called the media equation and apply to all media or computers as social actors, which is what's called. What's the from, from the beginning, they flipped a coin. Yeah, they, I think they flipped a coin for the title of the book, and that's why it was the media equation. No, I thought no. I heard the story that they flipped a coin on authorship order. Oh, maybe it was that too. But you know, I think they both go hand in hand. <laughs> Byron's more entertainment media, and then Cliff is computers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so in a way, I mean, despite both of us feeling a close affinity for the media equation, as it is kind of the the foundational theory on which we've built some of our work. It's really CASA that that we engage with directly, right? Computers yeah. as social actors theory. I think so, but I mean, honestly, like <laughs> if I'm going to read about CASA, uh, I'll probably read the Media Equation book and obviously Cliff's book too. And when I get when I review so many papers based on this topic, I see it. I see them both used still. Pretty interchangeably. Pretty so, interchangeably, but probably inaccurately interchangeably, right? Like if perhaps so. <laughs> yeah. If you say the media equation is 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 what describes computers, people responding to computers the same way they respond to people, you know, you think it's on your team, you like it more. It's polite to you, you're polite back. You're you like it more. Uh you 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 have to rate it. Um, you're more polite if or sorry, you're more critical if if you're not rating right to its face. If you say that's the media equation, um, you're right, but it's not as accurate as saying that's CASA. That's the CASA paradigm. Yeah, I think so. Especially because after the book and then those original studies, there's way more work that Cliff did on computers. So I think narrowing the scope is probably more accurate too. Yeah, yeah. So that's something I, I'd like to do in our work. Um, and then so so narrowing the scope as we move forward as a field, but also recognizing that things have changed. So um, so what is the premise of that paper that uh, we, that you led uh, with Jesse Fox and then I um, called Building a Stronger Casa? Yeah, basically just trying to locate the foundational principle of CASA, which is, I think, essentially the mindless application of social scripts or cognitive schema 
to our interactions to sort of guide them. And then thinking about how we use computers and use technologies so much so in our lives and how we are pretty adept users of those technologies. So most likely we have come up with ways to generally better navigate using those technologies based off our previous experiences with them. And I think that taking into account <laughs> those types of new models that we have built for interacting with technology is a good way to sort of expand the research a little bit. Uh, if nothing else, give us a few more things to look at in terms of CASA rather than just um, sort of the same principles that really have been almost proven at this point by Cliff uh, and all the Stanford researchers. So I think it just gives a little bit of fresh air to say that we changed a little bit with computers um, because computers have changed so much and they're so integrated into our lives but we still have the same principle of really basing our actions off of these sort of social scripts or cognitive heuristics to guide our actions and make them kind of, <laughs> kind of to be very efficient in that sense. Um, help yeah. us navigate the world with computers. Yeah. So social scripts. So kind of the, the formula that you follow for interacting with people. Um, but now we've got different scripts for different computer mediated communication or interactions with computers so um so what are what are a few different like of course in the in the early days when we were talking to computers and asking for you know information on from a website or uh maybe a, a personal mobile device a palm pilot back in the days of uh the early media equation research um how how have our scripts changed since then what are some examples that we can use to make this more concrete? I mean, I think they're just a lot more <laughs> sophisticated. And honestly, like trying to figure out the exact script has been quite a challenge, especially because the technologies do change so much. So I can definitely say when I was thinking of like the original idea for it, just the idea that people do generally tend to understand that they're talking to a computer if we're doing things like when we all get on those phones, customer service like interactions, we do tend to like want to deduce whether it's a computer or a human, even if it's just a chat thing or over voice on a phone. And when we find out it's a computer, I, I do think we respond to it by generally trying to make ourselves more understandable to the computer. We might try and like, modulate our voice so that is understandable, or we try to use certain keywords in like our chat queries to make sure that the chat agent can pick up on those things. And obviously, we wouldn't naturally do those things with a human. We would certainly have some keywords or buzzwords, but we would essentially give them a bit, a little bit more. Um, we'd give them a little more credit that they'd be able to figure out what we're talking about. And because we do make some of these changes to our behaviors with computers, it does seem to me that there is some evidence that we have made these sort of scripts and heuristics to better navigate those interactions. Um, even if it's just something simple like trying to uh, tell someone they did a terrible job or trying to get a refund for our bank purchases, uh, we have these ways of navigating those interactions to make sure we're understood by the computer to some degree. Yeah, oh, interesting. So when we communicate with people, we might have like a folk psychological mental model of what this person is thinking when I speak to them. So then I say the thing in the way that I might say it to myself, because I expect you to understand what I would understand. But when I'm speaking to a computer, my mental model of what the computer understands is maybe like how I think of communicating with a child or mm -hmm. how I think of communicating with someone when, when we're not speaking the same language fluently. Um, and so we have to be very careful in our word choice 
or you know other forms of communication. Um, so those are the different scripts that we might follow. Yeah, different scripts, and it's just a way of knowing the level of sophistication. Like we're of course very good at <laughs> identifying that as communicators, and I think it's a little obvious that of course we like we would attune like even our level of sophistication to a computer or a computer agent based on what's worked before. So we of course we get more simple when our talking and our language use and our vernacular, and also we try to be more direct and avoid things, <laughs> avoid, <laughs> avoid things that are unnecessary, I would say, in those types of interactions, because we know they're not going to be picked up or the context is not going to be understood. Yeah. Awesome. So we've, we've got a good foundation here. We've covered kind of the media equation to CASA to the modern day where people still do interact with computers the way they interact with people, but with maybe some slightly different modifications on the social scripts that we use. And of course the computers are speaking more like people and the more anthropomorphic they are, you know, the, the more we're, we're likely to use regular human scripts. Um, so research supports all that. So now let's get to chat GPT or social AI or, or Google's Bard, which I, I just started um, trying recently. And I noticed one interesting thing and, and to give me your take on this. When you when you type a query into ChatGPT, um, you get a response line by line, and word it, by it, word sometimes, yeah, word by word. It seems like it's thinking, right? <laughs> That's a really good point. That's, uh, there's a student in my program, uh, PhD student Liam, who is I think interested in looking at that exact phenomena of what we sort of think the computer's doing when it's uh, figuring out the next word to populate its string there. So, so um, but my, my question is, I wonder if it's really actually taking a moment to, to think about the next word or like, is that a, is that a processing efficiency uh, mechanism or is it just pure artifice? To make it feel like you're talking to a person, um, because be when I when I use the last one, <laughs> when I use Bard, there's no pause. Oh, really? So like, uh, like, why I'm gonna type in? Are you seeing my screen right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why does Chad GPT pause as it replies to questions? All right, and you're gonna see there's just thinking, thinking bubbles here, and then boom, wall of text. Um, large language model trained on a massive data set. So it's funny. This is Bard telling us how, uh, and so Bard is arguing that that it's actually, it's actually taking a moment to compute. I believe that could be true. I I wonder. If it does actually compute, I mean, I know it works by figuring out the most probable next word all the time. So maybe it is actually <laughs> propagating each word in the string. But I, I love the idea that it could like totally be for artificial in that sense, <laughs> because that would really just speak to how much we care about those social factors and <laughs> these chat AI spaces. Like we need it to uh, give us some social cue there. It's great. Absolutely. Um, it would also speak to the the designers of this system to <laughs> to like how clever they were in uh very savvy. That yeah, so here you know, yeah. like it it just it shows us the cursor as if it's typing. It's not typing. Obviously, <laughs> it's not typing. Like 
<laughs> obviously not typing but it does look like it's typing and like you know we know how that works from cmc like it makes sense that we would like that a little bit better i think like it does exactly. seem engaging <laughs> exactly like i was immediately put off by bard's wall of text i felt like it was a web query and not um, a social agent, which is just one little detail. I mean, that that's a huge detail. Uh, whatever, if anything can make something more engaging, it's so worth it for all these companies to really follow that model, I would say. like, But yeah, I, my student was telling me that um, his father thinks that he, he likes the pauses. It, it seems like it makes ChatGPT like it's thinking in the moment, like it's, yeah, we can't help but anthropomorphize. <laughs> it's pretty great. Exactly, exactly. So, so let's come up with some questions that can help us. Um, I I like this idea of comparing ChatGPT and Bard. And by the way, uh, <laughs> as I said before, the best plan is no plan when it comes to this recording. Um, so this wasn't my original plan, but I think this would be really fun. Let's compare some queries. And let's see which of the two feels more anthropomorphic. Uh -huh. And okay. um, and then, um, yeah, you know, let's try to analyze it from a Costa perspective. All right. I like it. So hard. Let's see. What is a good query that would give? We could them? ask, we could ask um, them both which they think is more anthropomorphic. That's good. <laughs> so is chat GPT or Bard more anthropomorphic? And let's ask, of course, both. Let's see. Let's see who starts giving us an answer first. Waiting. Okay. Chat GPT coming through with an answer a little bit faster. Um, oh, but no, I mean, Bard gets to the end with yeah. what GPT does. So, um, so AI, however, the level anthropomorphic depends on various factors such as type of training data set, quality of training, size of the model. Bard is an A language, share some similarities. Oh, so, so ChatGPT is giving it to Bard um, because Bard might have more cultural references, idiomatic expressions, or other nuances of language that are specific. Ah. Hmm. Okay, and let's see what Bard says. Oh, they're oh. both very polite. Bard <laughs> says that ChatGPT is more anthropomorphic. Uh, <laughs> I love it. That's so funny. Um, um, Human-like language. Uh, I guess that's true. Okay. Huh. How can we test that? I, so one of the, I've been having trouble thinking of ways to operationalize a lot of these um, constructs in the actual, removing them from the chat GPT context, because, I mean, we don't have <laughs> sophisticated large language model chatbots. So it's difficult to control these things. Um, but I would be curious, at least in terms of, just basic things like the, uh, yeah, from a user experience standpoint, whether or not that pausing and that cursor do lead to higher um, sense of anthropomorphism, higher sense of anthropomorphism. I yeah. think it would. Um, 
it, it seems compelling to me. I don't know if that's the reason why people would use ChatGPT, but it does seem to make it more human-like to me. Yeah, so so interface features. Yeah. Is there anything else in this interface that we we might feel is is more um Oh, that's so I can hit regenerate oh. response. The the ability to to up or downvote a response <laughs> um makes it feel less anthropomorphic to me. Ah. Let's see. Oh, that is a different answer. <laughs> yep, yep. So second answer from Bard is that neither of them are anthropomorphic. Oh wow, that's uh, like Cliff Nass definition of anthropomorphism <laughs> has to actually be human almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, just because they're not anthropomorphic, they can still be perceived as anthropomorphic. Can be definitely they may, they want us to anthropomorphize. I mean, th that is the the meat equation right here. So, what is what is the re uh, the regenerated response here from ChatGPT? It's much longer. Um, mm. it's a bit more sophisticated, I think. Oh, this is a similar thing, <laughs> not truly anthropomorphic. Yeah, exactly. They're simply processing information. So it's funny, their first answer like placed a stake in the ground. And it was the polite stake in the ground, right? <laughs> or, you know, that's how we would perceive it if we, you know, <laughs> because we are anthropomorphizing them. Um, but then the second response for both of them is kind of like neutral. There is no winner. <laughs> yeah, not uh, going too far out. I, yeah, it, I do wonder about like some of the interface features like this one. I don't know what it does user experience wise do you think it takes people out of the experience that'd be interesting to know well the the more it 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 in requires kind of interactions that i associate with a, a pure information yeah. interface right as opposed to a, a a cmc interface yeah like i do wonder I, there, I i feel like i haven't seen research on it but it seems to make sense like if you have a social cue that essentially cues you to the asocial nature of the platform or the information nature of the platform, does it like take you out of that media equation or computers a social active mindset? It seems like it should. Like it's a yeah. a non-interactive, uh, non like human interaction cue that might you know, make you realize that you're engaging with the computer. Absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, Fundamentally, we're interacting through text, which we know people respond socially to because of that research from Cliff and Byron. But um, we also know they respond more socially to voice. Right. And I'm, I'm I'm a bit surprised that there's no simple plugin to have these things read to you. There's an app you can download and like pay for a subscription. I forget what it's called, and I wouldn't want to advertise it anyway. But um, <laughs> You know, like like Google can turn all, everything that they do into the a Google Voice prompt and and kind of interaction. So, will Bard run Hey Google eventually? I I wonder. I mean, I had invested so much 
resources of my like life into thinking about virtual assistants. And now it seems like virtual assistants may just go away to some degree because they're not as sophisticated as ChatGPT. Why would they go away though? Why wouldn't they just become them? Yeah, yeah, they might. I mean, they might be subsumed by um, a, a voice interaction interface. I don't know. Maybe we like. Maybe we. There's some reason we like text though for some of these things, or just like finding out. Uh, finding out not trivial pieces of information, but you no, know, like things we do in like search. Like, I, if anything, I feel like it'll replace search, <laughs> and there'll be more sophisticated virtual agents. Um, but I, I think there are maybe. Even though there's more presence for voice interaction, there's probably some things we like to do by text. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe. I, I think so. I mean, text is certainly efficient um, in so many ways. So I thought of a prompt here. You ready? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Write me a short, should we say poem or story? or just essay, um, convincing me that you're human. <laughs> yeah, write me a short yeah, story could work. <laughs> convincing me that you are human. So let's see, bard and chat. Now, I, I wonder if it understands the word you to be. It has to, yeah. To be it. it. Huh. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who always had been curious about the world around her. Oh, wait, hold on. We should. Um, wait. Okay. Here's this. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for my stumbling here. So it's funny. ChatGPT jumps right into it, writing this story. Yeah. Um, whereas Bard, like, writes a preface. I am a chatbot. Yeah. I am not human, but I can be convincing. <laughs> they're like wait a minute we don't want to lead you down but i'm still underdeveloped but i'm learning new things every day i hope that one day i'll be able to convince you i'm human here's a short story that might convince you i'm a human okay hold on wait before we read this um i'm going to share my sound and then i'm going to text to speech this Let's hope that Speechify does not, ah, come on, some system that doesn't make me pay, please, is nuance free? I, you know, if this weren't a, a consistent, a, an unplanned, will this run, will this run, will this run? Here we go. We're good. I was walking down the street when I saw a little girl crying. I asked her what was wrong, and she told me that she had lost her dog. I helped her look for her dog, and we eventually found him hiding under a car. The little girl was so happy to see her dog, and she thanked me profusely. I felt good about helping the little girl, and I realized that I was capable of empathy and compassion. I believe that my ability to empathize and feel compassion is what makes me human. Humans are social creatures, and we rely on each other for support and understanding. I am able to understand the feelings of others, and I am able to help them when they are in need. I believe that this is what makes me human. <laughs> but you can't walk down the street. Uh, it's not. It's not too convincing. I, I That's from Bard. Okay. That was Bard. All right. Here we go with ChatGPTs. Mm, let's see.
Once upon a time, there was a little girl who had always been curious about the world around her. One day, she stumbled upon a chatbot named ChatGPT and asked it if it was human. ChatGPT replied with a well-crafted response, but the little girl still wasn't convinced. So, ChatGPT decided to tell her a story to show that it was human. It told her about a time when it was a child, just like her, and it loved to play in the park. ChatGPT described how it would run around and play with its friends, chasing after butterflies and picking wildflowers. The little girl listened intently, and as ChatGPT continued to share stories about its life, she began to realize that there was something uniquely human about them. She could feel the emotion and the personality behind the words, and she realized that this chatbot was more than just a machine spitting out pre-written responses. As the conversation came to an end, the little girl smiled and thanked ChatGPT for sharing its stories. She had come to see that this AI language model was capable of ex- <laughs> okay. yeah, That's pretty good. That was pretty good. Yeah. Mm, let's finish it. Capable of expressing itself in a way that felt truly human, with all the quirks and idiosyncrasies that come with being a unique individual. She left the conversation feeling enriched and satisfied, with a newfound appreciation for the complexity of AI technology. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. are, we are we convinced um, ChatGPT is more human than, uh, than Bart? I do think it, I mean, it does seem to do a better job with the responses being extremely sophisticated and human-like in conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think so too. I mean, oh, I just, sorry, I stopped sharing my screen because I kind of wanted to just focus on talking, uh, but I regenerated the answer from Bard to see if it would do any better. Give it one more try. Nope. Nope. It's still, it still clearly has a very cautious engineering team that has some sort of cue, which is like when people try to, when you're trying to convince yeah. people you're human, like, you know, give some sort of preface. <laughs> um, so there's there's a preface and then it doesn't really do anything besides uh saying yeah i need to convince you that i have emotions they're really uh they're really into the prefaces on, on bars there making i sure guess that so you know. <laughs> well more more lawyers more more to lose over at google <laughs> than um open ai i imagine oh that's google's oh, oh my god yeah yeah all gonna be yeah let's see i i do wonder i mean i've read a lot of articles on how it's going to change work for people i'm very curious about it I'm, I'm i'm excited to see it play out um in what ways do you think it'll change work uh so i was reading in uh, in my tech re mit tech review uh basically when you use chat gpt as like uh, an assistant or something to help you with work, it can really close the gap of like more highly skilled, highly trained workers to more of like a lower trained workforce with all that expertise and knowledge at its disposal can get a lot of the work done and close that gap considerably, which uh, I don't know, may not be great for a lot of our sectors. Yeah. You mean those of us who are highly skilled in, in, uh, <laughs> In like APA formatting. That's right. <laughs> you could definitely, if someone was an APA like a tutor or editor, it could definitely put you out of business for sure. That is something you can do very well. 
but uh but you know the the common story of the luddites um struggle is that these new technologies displace jobs um but then they create many more um so so do you think like working with ai will be a skill that is i don't know valued in the workforce i do especially if it and that's one study but if that if that result bears out across multiple studies where you can essentially without necessarily training your workforce like have them get way more skillful and uh in way increased output uh i think it will absolutely be a skill that's needed at that point like we're training our students to probably have to be able to use that if they're going to be an entry-level job where they don't have the highest amount of training yet um they can close that gap pretty quickly i think employers will definitely want that <laughs> everywhere yeah. you can't i mean you can't make up productivity like that like, there's no other way to do it other than invest in serious resources yeah yeah so then here here's here's a a thesis for you and tell me what you think um i i've never thought this idea at least in these terms yet, but um, but I think it makes sense. So, <clears throat> you know, the idea of seeing through the matrix, it's mm -hmm. like seeing through the matrix, seeing through the matrix, right? Like you, you see the code, but like, you don't actually, you're, you're not even looking at what's on the surface. You kind of see what's underneath, right? You can, you can just perceive uh, beyond the illusion of the technology. So maybe that's a metaphor or I don't know, less than a metaphor. Um, for the way that people might interact with, with media technologies. We know there are individual differences in the extent to which people respond socially, right? Not everyone is the same CASA, has the same CASA effect as others. There's a normal distribution. So the people who respond less socially, here's my, here's my thesis, um, the people who respond less socially to AI will be better at understanding what the technology can do they see through the matrix and thus they will be more marketable and valuable in future workplaces because they um they don't need to spend the time to be polite uh to communicate with the chat gpt and they're not convinced that it has emotions they just get right to you know what can this thing do in this job in this moment what do you think convincing or not I think it's uh, pretty convincing. It's definitely one of the skills that would be <laughs> you'd want someone to have because other than other than yeah, being able to work with it better and more efficiently, it would also be the first a person like that would probably be best at identifying when it's appropriate to use ChatGPT and when it or when it's appropriate to use any large language model and know sort of like <laughs> the same way like when we're looking for help with something like if we go to like Stat Exchange or something or. MATLAB, like some of the answers aren't so great, but we have to have that like hunch in the back of your mind. That's like, this is something that's extremely difficult. This is something that people have a lot of misunderstanding about to really be able to know if you can use the resource or not. I think ChatGPT or any large language model will have the same sort of gaps and holes because it's drawing from those same sort of databases and it can sound very confident. So if you do respond socially to that confidence, it's going to be sometimes problematic when we should be a little more skeptical at times. Um, especially with the information it's giving us. Yeah, interesting. So perhaps a somewhat ironic conclusion of our uh, journey here is, is to be wary 
of of Casa uh, in this era of social AI? Yeah, I think absolutely. We should whenever we're doing things that are, if we take a step back, are clearly not necessarily inappropriate, but you know, incongruent at the least. Uh, we always have to be wary of that because it can get us in some strange places, especially when we let the mindlessness drive the bus a little bit too much. Don't let the mindlessness drive the bus. The mindlessness is a pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> you, do you get that reference, Andrew? Do you spend I do time not. Three-year-olds. Um, okay. There's there's this great there's this great book and series um by Mo Willems, uh, children's author that says don't let the pigeon drive. The title is don't let the pigeon drive the bus. He also wrote the elephant and piggy series, uh, which are like extremely philosophically rich children's books um that are hilarious and and super easy to consume um don't let the mindlessness drive the bus is kind of the same idea in some ways right the pigeon is maybe not the brightest of the uh of the animals in in the animal <laughs> kingdom and in this particular story the pigeon really wants to drive the bus the problem <laughs> is that people often let the pigeon drive the of their minds um that mindless kind of automatic response um so yeah recognizing that these social responses are the pigeon uh trying to drive your bus don't let that pigeon all up in your bus <laughs> yeah gotta be critical i like seeing through the matrix though like I, it would help a lot but it's too much work probably to educate undergraduates on what's going on at least in our like discipline, what's going on in a large language model is just way too much overwhelming math going on there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe not in a media and info or information science major uh, or communication major, but with a bit of computer science, at least you can probably, mm -hmm. and even in those majors, you can probably get the high level theory of how it's working, right? Yeah, that's probably true too. It would definitely help maybe in my next class I can do, I can do that. Yeah. Awesome. So let's wrap up here. Um, and I don't know where, where should we go next with all, all of these inquiries, Andrew, or where are you going to go next in your kind of research related to these topics? Oh yeah. So the one thing I've been really playing around with is it pertains to these actual like large language models is working. Yeah. Working with them. And I think there's an actual gap for once I have, I think there's an actual gap in terms of, um, not only uh, out, it's like an output gap in terms of how you feel about something you make when using something like a large language model as an assistant or helping you put together or come to an answer versus how your audience perceives you when you uh, use that large language model to maybe come to an answer or put out some work. So hopefully do some <laughs> early experiments and stuff and see how people feel when they produce work with the AI how then people rate those outputs and then how people rate them when they know that they produce with the AI to see how our sort of um, where we fall and the differences between how we feel we're doing versus how we're actually um, presenting ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Um, so kind of psychological responses to large language models um, and, and, and the work that gets produced. Yeah, yeah. I think the actual application. So like when we do work, when we get answers, when we need help, like, of course, do we metacognitively feel smarter? And then how do other people sort of feel about us doing that? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. 
Um, yeah, I like that. I like that very much. Um, so how long until we need to start doing the, uh, the whole, like, prepare for resisting your robot overlords research? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't think anyone actually knows the answer to that question. <laughs> we'll see. Um, we'll see what the actual concerns are. Then there should be some. I don't think there. <laughs> I like Guillaume Lacoon, the, like, godfather of, um, uh, modern neural nets he doesn't think it's a problem because there's no dominance <laughs> like an a tra ai trained net doesn't have any sense of dominance like maybe humans do like evolutionarily evolved to at least dominate other species for their well-being but ai won't have that it'll just be maybe really really insightful or really sharp really good at calculations but not necessarily need to dominate other things mm. so he's not so, concerned so you know i guess robot overlords is a different way of of framing it that implies dominance and and um and so maybe it's just robot lords like, robot lords, huh? like people like like people worshiping these ai models like you said really insightful like they'll be the wisest oracles of of our day and they'll tell us stories about how they <laughs> convince convince us that they can feel emotions um and then people will will worship them is that i wonder if that's a good thing or a bad thing i guess it's a good thing if it helps them be productive yeah so my other great mentor uh great autumn edwards has an interesting thought on this i think you might like it uh just that it would be the first time in history at some point like probably soon that you can have one communicator communicating to just a ton of different people one chat gbt or one bot one other language model that becomes like big is be able to spread like their own word or gospel to a, just an entire audience of people at the same time for really the first time like ever like that could actually be a possibility and not only just communicate one message like in a printing press or mass comm message but also interact in real time with presumably one maybe concrete personality type thing driving it so It'll be interesting to see, like, maybe there will be, like, some degree of worship that goes on to these uh, amazing agents that are with us all the time, can interact with us all the time, and interact similarly, give a similar experience to millions and millions of people. Be afraid. Now, I, I pulled out over, over from the Lords, you know, to respond to what you said earlier, but then what you're saying now to have that one communicator managing the message, that's a lot of power. And, uh, you know, governments and companies aren't going to ignore that potential, um, <laughs> which means like it, it's ripe for competition and uh, and the winner will take maybe not all, but quite a lot. Ah, winner should take quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. All right. Well, on that uh, terrifying, uh, pessimistic note, let's end this amazing <laughs> reunification of uh, Gambino and Rattan. Um, and I look forward to doing more research with you and maybe having you back on the podcast. I could see this as kind of a regular, regular topic to, to uh -huh. hit up. Yeah, always happy to see you, man. Talk research, talk cool things. And you know, let's hope you get some good luck in the next few cycles here. Awesome. Well, thanks to whoever tuned in for this uh, relaunch of SpartyCast. Hope you enjoyed. Shoot Andrew or I an email if you have any questions. How about both of us? And uh, and we'll gladly respond because you are the, the few and, and brave who made it to the end. All right. I'm going to hit pause here. <laughs>